I'm Justin Voss. And I'm Ryan Isabel. And this is Built in Motion. A show about life and engineering. A little warning about this episode, it does contain a graphic description of a wartime situation. Right, so maybe this isn't one to listen to with young kids. Depending on what year you were born, you probably have your own idea for the sounds and the music of the 60s. In the 60s and early 70s, we had some of the best music around. Maybe it's the catchy music of the Beach Boys, Don't Worry Baby. Or the psychedelic tone of the Beatles, Tomorrow Never Knows. Or if you're lucky enough, it might have been the low rumble of a 68 Camaro. But for a certain age group of men just old enough to graduate high school, there's one sound that will forever stand out. That's the sound of the Bell UH-1. The UH stands for Utility Helicopter, and it was originally designated with the H before the U, making it HU. And just like how the GP in World War II became Jeep. And Army guys being Army guys, so it was called a Huey. That's Bob. My name's Robert Shine. I go by Bob. Bob was a UH-1 Huey helicopter pilot in Vietnam. Did Bob join the U.S. Army to become a helicopter pilot? Bob joined the Army by actually answering a call-out for helicopter pilots. I was sitting in high school, didn't know what I wanted to do, didn't really want to go to college, and I was reading a senior scholastic magazine, and it said become a warrant officer helicopter pilot right out of high school. So that appealed to me, and um, I went ahead and did it. He joined in 1968. He was only 18 years old, and he set off to become a helicopter pilot. It wasn't easy. Rigorous physicals and flight school was like OCS. Officer Candidate School, or OCS, is a rigorous 12-week course designed to develop second lieutenants for the U.S. Army. The majority of Army student helicopter pilots went through flight school as warrant officer candidates. Upon graduation, WOCs received the rank of warrant officer. At the same time, you're learning how to fly with guys yelling at you all the time. It's not only the intelligence to fly a helicopter, it was the skill and the hand-eye coordination. It was two sticks, both hands, both feet, on top of the rest of the intelligence that was required to operate this machine. And then uh, I was flying in Vietnam at 19 and 20. And he was flying one of these Huey model slicks. Yeah, they call them slicks because they were um, smooth, uh, not really carrying uh, external guns like the gunships did. The gunships usually consisted of C's and uh, B models, but most most, uh, slicks did carry an M60 machine gun on each side uh, operated by the crew chief and the gunner on the left and right. The pilot and the co-pilot are together in the cockpit of a Huey. They have good visibility to the outside world through large glass windows. The main pilot was known as the aircraft commander. 
The uh, aircraft commander was the guy in charge of the, the helicopter and the mission and anything to do with it. And then the co-pilot. The nickname Peter Pilot, because um, he was just a new guy, usually, with uh, very little experience or just learning to become an aircraft commander. The cargo area is accessed by large sliding doors on the side of the helicopter. In Vietnam, these doors were often left slid open. On one side would sit the door gunner, and on the other, the crew chief. Crew chief was the guy that um, he flew and manned one of the guns, but it was also his helicopter, uh, maintenance-wise, to keep it flying. And the gunner was the uh, in charge of the machine guns and operating the gun on one side of the ship. Horizontal stabilizer wings were centrally located on the tail beam, with an anti-torque rotor on the end. They had two ski-like landing skids, which made it possible to land in almost any kind of terrain. So helicopter pilots in Vietnam would do a lot of... Dropping troops off in, in the, uh, the landing zones, and then we'd go back and uh, to the staging area and sit and wait for them to do their combat, and then we'd uh, come back and pick them up after the battle was done. When you're stationed in Vietnam as a helicopter pilot, you'll usually get your mission information of what you're going to be doing the day before. The orders would be on the uh, the chalkboard and just assign you the uh, the mission and what uh, position you'd be in the and which helicopter you'd be in. So you kind of have an idea of what the next day calls for. I'm sure once you found out what your mission was, there was plenty of sleepless nights. Yeah, there was one time um, I was still a new guy and... Um, he woke up in the morning. Just about uh, sunrise. And they go through their pre-flight checklist. On a pre-flight, you'd uh, be checking for anything that was out of place or broken, checking tolerances, looking for any uh, obvious damage uh, or not-so-obvious damage. It was an important thing to do, and, and we usually paid quite close attention to it because it could mean the difference between getting back and um, not getting back that night. And once the walk-arounds are done, you'd... Climb into your seat, put on your chicken plate, the armor. Chicken plate, as it was often called, was a green standardized vest that was filled with aluminum oxide ceramic plates. The ceramic armor was rated to protect against 30 caliber fire from 100 yards and were issued to U.S. Army air crews. Um, buckle yourself in. Adjust all the uh, controls because everybody uh, was a different size. Then at a certain time, we'd crank the helicopter or start it up. We had the old-fashioned tube-type radios, so it took time to, for them to warm up um, and to run your pre-flight checks and all that stuff once the engine is running and make sure all the controls and um, radios are functioning and your instruments and make radio contact and make sure everybody was up to fly. Then um, we would call and, and form up on the runway and the, the lead ship would talk to the tower and then would take off in a certain formation, whatever uh, position dictated that, that formation for the day. We, we started out in a flight of five up by, it was called Mukwa, right on the Ca uh, Cambodian border. Uh, we were doing combat assaults. That's where you take the helicopters and insert troops in to an LZ or a landing zone. It, it was a cold LZ at that point, meaning a cold, you're not getting shot at. This was their first order of the day, drop off the Arvin troops. 
ARVIN is the acronym for the Army of the Republic of Vietnam. These were the South Vietnamese troops fighting alongside the U.S. Uh, we were still heavily engaged at that time in the war, and the uh, it was called Vietnamization. Uh, they wanted to get the Vietnamese involved in the uh, the fighting and stuff like that. And at the time, they, they weren't the best soldiers in the world to be working with. They just wanted their uh, rice paddy and acre field to be working and uh, really weren't gung-ho about being there. After we did that, they sent us out on a two-ship mission to pick up um, what they told us were uh, captured uh, munitions. So Bob was just flying along, slightly behind and to the right of the ship in front of him. And he cut over to where the uh, munitions were, so I had to swing over to the other position, and that's where the bodies were. I think the guy in front of me, he saw what was ahead of us, and he, he decided he was going to pick up the munitions because he didn't want the bodies. They weren't in body bags, and they were in various states of rigor mortis, so it, it was uh, pretty eerie. So the dead South Vietnamese soldiers were just stacked up in the back of his helicopter? Yeah, pretty much. There, there were a lot of body fluids floating around the inside the ship, the way the wind blows, and um, we were getting covered with all kinds of stuff. It, it was quite an eye-opener for a 19-year-old kid. Then um, we went back to Mukwa to, to wait to extract the uh, rest of the um, company of Avin that we had put in, and that, that was towards evening. So Bob's covered in the worst of war while they wait back at base until it's time to head back out. That night as we were extracting the troops, we were in a flight of five, and I was at the controls as a PETA pilot. The um, sky lit up with tracer. As we were getting shot at. The Viet Cong had captured a minigun which was capable of firing anywhere from 2,000 to 6,000 rounds a minute. Wait a minute. Aside from the steel plate that they have on their chest, what other type of armor or protection do they have against a gun like that? There wasn't much. Some Hueys had armored pilot seats, but besides that, there was basically nothing. The thing was plexiglass and uh, beer kitten metal was the rest of the protection and uh, the minigun shot us down. Everyone on Bob's crew was okay, as they were able to have some control on the way down. But if getting shot down wasn't terrible enough, it was where they went down. It was a, um, a swamp, a big swamp. That's the best way to describe it. The, the water was up to our necks, and it, it smelled like a sewer. Hello, darkness, my old friend. At this point, darkness is approaching. They have just been shot down by a nearby enemy, and they're up to their necks in dark swamp water, so there's not much else they can do but immediately get to work. Got the radios and guns off it. And they waited.
The rescuing Huey came down over the swamp and hovered just above the swamp water. We threw everything on board and we were able to climb on board and get out of there and go back to Mukwa and sit in a cold huddle heap uh, for the rest of the night until the uh, extraction was completed. Wow, they got very lucky. Very. And it was a good thing they got out of there when they did, because the Viet Cong was on their way. And as soon as the VC got there and only found the helicopter, they blew it up so that the American troops wouldn't be able to come back and extract it. So what happened with the mission of extracting the troops? The other four helicopters were able to get it, and our gunships were able to suppress the minigun. So most people probably think when a helicopter like Bob's Huey is shot up so bad, it would just fall out of the sky. Also a question I had. The um, helicopter is designed so that the rotor blade is not connected directly to the engine. It's freewheeling. Um, the, the turbine drives the, uh, the system. But if the engines stop, the um, blades will keep spinning, uh, much like a seed of a, uh, a maple tree uh, where it comes floating down. Uh, that, that is used to land the helicopter in an emergency. I had always kind of pictured that if a helicopter's engine failed, it was over. That should make you feel better about flying in a helicopter. Make me feel better. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk about how the Huey helicopter came to be such a vital part of the Vietnam War. Well, let's take things back to 1956. Actually, we need to take things back a little further. Yeah, you're right, because to get to the origin story of the Huey helicopter, we first need to understand why it came to be. In 1950, during the Korean War, helicopters were starting to rise as an ideal way to extract down soldiers in dangerous situations. The helicopter is the newest bit of equipment used in medical evacuation. In Korea, it made a dramatic contribution to the lowering of casualty rates because of its ability to reach inaccessible places and lift itself into the air quickly. But the wounded were held outside of the aircraft. So it was in 1952 that Bell Aircraft answered a call by the United States Army for a new medical evacuation and utility helicopter that would allow a stretcher to be placed inside of the cabin. Twenty companies submitted their designs, and in February 1955, the Army selected Bell Aircraft and told them to build three copies of its Model 204 for evaluation. The Bell Model 204 was designated by the U.S. Army as the XH-40, and first flew in Fort Worth, Texas in the fall of 1956. After a couple more prototypes were built, the Army contracted 100 units built, and they designated it the HU-1A, and officially named it the Iroquois after the Native American nations. Even though the helicopter was officially named the Iroquois, similar to how the soldiers in World War II nicknamed the GP general purpose vehicle the Jeep, the HU-1 helicopter utility became the Huey. The Huey's engine was a product of the advancements made in turbine technology throughout the 1950s. The Model 204 was the military's first turbine-powered helicopter. The turbine engine revolutionized the aviation industry. They had a higher horsepower-to-weight ratio than the previous piston engines that were used in helicopters. The turbine engine allowed them to mount the motor on top of the helicopter, giving a larger payload, and most importantly was being able to get a stretcher inside the cabin. The single most limiting factor of early helicopter development was the amount of power produced. 
the early engine struggled to produce enough power to overcome its own weight during vertical lift. The Huey used a first-of-its-kind turbine engine, the Lycombe T-53, capable of 860 horsepower at over 21,000 RPM. This was also known as a turboshaft engine. A turboshaft engine is very similar to a turbojet engine. Instead of producing thrust, the combustion is converted into output shaft power. The HU-1A became the first U.S. turbine helicopter to go into full production and first entered service for evaluation with the 101st and 82nd Airborne Divisions as well as the 57th Medical Detachment. They were quickly put into operational service for the first time when it was brought into Vietnam in March of 1962 with the 57th Medical Detachment. By 1964, the Army was flying more than 300 Hueys, both the Model A and the more powerful Model B quickly becoming the iconic workhorse of the Vietnam War. The Huey did everything in Vietnam, from transporting combat troops and supplies to carrying out air assault missions. It also saved numerous lives by evacuating the wounded quickly out of hot zones. The Huey was literally a lifeline for thousands of troops in Vietnam. The sound of the Huey's two big blades chopping through the air in the distance meant that help was on its way. And this help was in the form of young kids, barely out of high school, with a lot of potential life ahead of them, not really knowing if they would even make it home. Didn't think I'd make it to my 21st birthday, so I wasn't too worried about that fact. I just kind of went on and did my job and tried to be the best pilot I could be. There were almost 12,000 helicopters that served in the Vietnam War, and over 7,000 of those were Hueys. Almost half of our helicopters were lost while fighting this war. Even with the risk around being a combat helicopter pilot in Vietnam, the way Bob feels about his time spent over there may surprise you. It it was quite the experience of my life. It shaped my whole life. I'd do it again in a second if I had the chance. When Bob returned from Vietnam, he went to college with kids that were only a few years younger than him, but... I felt like I was an old man compared to the kids, and I was um, 21, and of course they were 18 and 19, and I felt like I was worlds apart. I, I just couldn't believe that, that these people lived in a, like a little bubble. And just, of course, I i mean, I was in their boots two years before that, too. But, um, yeah, they just, just didn't have a clue what was out there. You know, you took a little kid from Braintree and throw him into a third world country and people dying and blowing up and shooting and everything like that. And it's, it, it just, it makes you grow up real quick. The Army retired the Huey in 2011, after over 50 years of service. Although the Huey was a remarkable example of American engineering, it was useless without the brave soldiers who fought and died for our country. I, I, was, I was probably a misplaced hippie, but I, I was doing what I love to do, so... A hippie that liked to fly, you know. <laughs> Give me a Huey any day. Give me a Huey any day. Thank you to Bob Shine for sharing one of his many Vietnam stories with us, and thank you to Airtime for the Huey song you're hearing right now. And please subscribe to us using your favorite podcast app to never miss an episode. We are still releasing on the once-a-month schedule. We don't want you to forget about us. You can also follow us on Twitter at Built in Motion and find us on Facebook. 
To see some photos of the Vietnam-era Huey and a couple photos of Bob then and now, visit BuiltInMotion.com. I'm Justin Voss. And I'm Ryan Isabel. Thanks for listening. Cats while we fly intact, doing the business all day long.